Welcome to this lecture on what is the carbon footprint of your clothes. Um, this is part of UCL's climate campaign Generation One, um, which is about taking responsibility for climate action and turning science into actionable ideas. Um, you can find more about find out more about Generation One at ucl.ac.uk slash generation slash one. Um, and um, some of the actions that we're working on at the moment include a pledge campaign um, uh, where you can um, inspire others by sharing your pledge on social media um, using the hashtag, uh, hashtag um, UCL Generation One um, and our new Generation One podcast series where you can find details um, on that you can find details about on, on the UCL Generation One website. Okay. So for today, I would like to now introduce um, our two speakers. Um, first of all, we have Teresa Dominich, who's the Associate Professor in Industrial Ecology and the Circular Economy at UCL. Um, Teresa is also the Founding Director of the UCL Circular Economy Lab and the UCL Plastic Innovation Hub. Um, she's contributed to leading international research in the areas of sustainable industrial development, decarbonization pathways, and circular economy. Um, and her expertise covers resource and energy implications of the textile and fashion textile sector. Um, second, we've got uh, Dr. Joe Hale, who is um, a senior research associate uh, at UCL Center for Behavioral Change. Um, Joe leads behavioral change research for environmental sustainability with a focus on complex systems. Um, her projects have looked at urban climate mitigation, sustainable fashion, decarbonizing homes, and systems of waste and recycling. Um, she's also worked with the Welsh government, BEIS, DEVRA, and the think tank Policy Connect. Um, at the end of today's lecture, we'll have some time for questions um, that you can submit at any, at any point during the lecture by going to sly.do, that's S-L-I dot D-O. Um, and then you can enter an event code there um, under hashtag UCL climate, and that'll get you to the Slido section. Um, you'll also be able to find the link to the Slido um, in the email that you received when you signed up for this event. Um, and yeah, with that being said, I'd like to pass on to our first speaker, Teresa Dominic. Thank you so much, Johara, and welcome everyone to the Lunch Hour Seminar. I'm really excited to be here today and to be speaking about fashion. Um, and the carbon footprint of clothes. Um, so let me just share my screen one second. Um, so let's start with a bit of a reflection of why, what is fashion and why is fashion important? And um, say that fashion is very much, or clothes are very much connected to societies uh, and it's very, it's a basic need. Uh, we need clothes in, in our society settings, but it's also very much a social good. Uh, it also is a reflection of our cultural identity. We see that clothes variations across cultures and also uh, in the time reflects very much senses in, in our society, like for example, here you see these Victorian ladies in this very uh, uncomfortable, <laughs> nice clothes. And then we see something like this a bit more current, which is a much more uh, unisex type of, of clothes where uh, we can move freely as women. Uh, so it very much defines our cultural identity. It's something that um, from a societal point of view, 
uh, it gathers quite a lot of, of what we mean as a society and what also what we mean or we want to represent as an individual. So it's an important thing, but I think the, the question that we should ask next is from a resource perspective, why should we concern about fashion or what are the things that should be concerning when we think about fashion or when we think about our fashion habits? Um, and this is a picture that I took. Uh, actually, this is a place in London when uh, there's places in London where they're actually manufacturing clothes. And um, when we talk about fashion, normally it's, it's what we call a hidden uh, sector. It doesn't, uh, many people doesn't associate uh, fashion or our consumption of clothes as a high impacting activity. But actually, if we look at the, at the data that we have, the evidence we have uh, on global trends on fashion, it's actually the fifth highest sector in terms of greenhouse gases and the fourth highest sector if we look at raw material consumption only after things like housing, transport, and food. So it's, it's a really, really impactful uh, sector that some, uh, sometimes we don't realize uh, what is the actual damage that we are doing by the way we are consuming clothes right now. And also, if we want to, to have some sort of sense of the magnitude of this, it's more than all international flights and maritime shipping combined. So it's a, it's a big impactful sector. And we, understand, we need to understand what are the dynamics of, of that, why it's uh, creating such a big impact, and how we can actually tweak all that system into a more regenerative, circular, and low carbon system. Uh, if we look individually, each of us, um, probably we are not aware, but we are, um, our uh, textile purchasing is contributing to over half ton of CO2 emissions every year. And this represents around 10% of our individual carbon budget. So it's, it's a big chunk of <laughs> our carbon budget. And it's actually a sector where we have a lot of agency to actually change the, the things we do. I mean, when sometimes when we look at what can we do to, to, um, to reduce our carbon footprint, uh, we start to, to get discouraged because there's things that we cannot change or we cannot change as quickly as we as we could. For example, the energy sources we use or things like that. But actually fashion is something where as consumers or users, if we want to, to talk in circular economy terms, we have a lot of agency to actually make changes that will actually have um, a sizable impact in our carbon footprint. So what is fast fashion? And should we be concerned about fast fashion? We know uh, the term fast food, and we know that fast food is very bad for us as it's very unhealthy uh, to rely on fast, um, fast food. And is fast fashion something similar? And actually, yes, we could say that there's it's quite a lot of similarities to fast food. Fast fashion, we have a very quick rollout of different connect, uh, collections. And uh, we have um, that, that also has implications in, in resources and uh, pollution. And it also, as fast food is damaging in our health, fast fashion is damaging the health of our planet and that will always backfire to us. So it's, it's actually also um, having a negative impact on our health. But sometimes those, uh, the connections between the impact and, and the causes is a bit, le a bit um, less direct than in the case of fast food. And sometimes we are not aware of those connections, but definitely yes, fast fashion is bad for our health and the health of our planet. 
Um, so when we talk about fast fashion, what do we mean by that? So we mean that uh, now brands, they are launching five, then collections of brands, they are launching uh, new collections every couple of weeks, every month. Uh, so that means that we have a large product, a large increase in production of clothes um, along the, the years. Um, and also that is accompanied by a large increase in the consumption of fiber. So here we look at this this graph on my left hand side, we see the, the increase in the amount of fibers that are used to produce textiles. And what is also interesting is this shift, uh, shift uh, between natural fibers, which is for example, cotton, uh, we have in yellow orange color to plastic artificial fibers, uh, which it also explains how fast fashion is able to keep prices low. Um, artificial fibers are quite cheap and relatively cheap compared to other fibers. And therefore we can increase productions, keep prices really low and encourage uh, further consumption of, of goods. The other side of fast fashion or a uh, linked effect of that is that the way we utilize the clothes also changes um, um, according to this. So we now utilize our clothes much, much less. It means that we use uh, an item, a piece of clothes, we might use it uh, four to five times before we dispose of and there's some statistics around that. So it's very, very short periods of time. We consume a lot of clothes, we use it very little and we very quickly get rid of, of that um, piece of garment, that piece of clothes because it's no longer uh, following the trends or, or whatever other reason or there's other a lot of other new things that are coming along that we are tempting to to buy um, the other side of this obviously that we have an increased generation of textile waste um, we know that in Europe we have around uh, 5.6 million probably this is uh, much higher now uh, of tons of textile waste produced every year. But the important thing is that this is only around 20% of all the clothes put in the market. So there's around 80% of the clothes that no one really knows where they go. Um, they will be waste at some point, but at the, uh, they are, there's a lack of traceability. We don't really know where they are, um, how are they going to be treated at the end of life. And also very importantly is the lar a large fraction of those uh, textile waste will go to what I call non-circular destinations. So that means that it will go to end up in landfill or incineration with um, a large carbon footprint in both those destinations, or it will be exported to um, third countries outside European Union. When we think about our clothes and our habits, so many of us will, uh, the clothes that we don't no longer want, we put them on a, on a bag for charity. And we are hoping that those clothes will be recycled in some way or will be reutilized by someone else. But actually the majority of those things, they are being exported and traded in the international market as secondary textiles, sometimes as, as waste textiles, and they end up in third countries. Um, what are the consequences of that um, being shipped to uh, the other part of the world? First of all, is going to create environmental and social pressures in those countries. There's quite a lot of studies that says that that's damaging to, to some of the local regional 
industries, but also that uh, means that there's quite a lot of like um, uh, illegal infrastructure of hand pickers and of uh, secondary textiles. And most of them will end up in non-circular destinations in unregulated landfills or dams and um, open fires because those countries don't have any um, adequate recycling or treatment facilities for textile waste. So this is uh, fast fashion <laughs> on, uh, yeah, on an overall picture. So lots of things put on the market, we use them very little, we create a lot of waste and then that waste is basically uh, ending up in landfill or being incinerated. So a lot of resources that are just wasted and they are creating a lot of impacts in, in greenhouse gas uh, emissions. So you could say, okay, but yes, but an innocent cotton t-shirt, it cannot be that bad. Well, uh, probably one t-shirt is not that bad, but if we count how many t-shirts we have in our wardrobes, then we can start feeling a bit guilty. So we see that for one uh, cotton t-shirt here, we have around 12 cubic meters of water use, around half kilo of chemicals being used, or when in one t-shirt will be less, uh, but this is for um, kilogram of textiles. Uh, we have about 54 megajoules of energy and around 2.6 to 4, depending on, on, on different sources of uh, carbon emissions associated with the production and, and use of the t-shirt. Uh, so you say, well, t-shirt, yes, maybe it's not that much, but if you count the amount of t-shirts that we as, as, as users, consumers uh, use throughout the year, that's actually uh, adding up to a reasonable uh, uh, impact. And also if we consider all the other pieces of garments, so if we say we multiply by this by three, you have address more or less. So if you say three times the amount of water, three times the amount of energy, and uh, three times the amount of carbon implications for something like a dress, uh, if it's something like jeans, probably you'll have to multiply by something like five times. And uh, yeah, for a code, something like five to six times. So um, we can actually all, all of us make this exercise and then maybe after the lunch hour lecture, you can go to your wardrobe and see how much carbon you have sequestered in your, in your wardrobe and also what are you going to do about it and whether you need to add one more t-shirt to your collection. Um, so this is important to consider because Otherwise, if we continue as we are, if we continue in the business as usual type of trend, it's, uh, we, we don't change anything, we continue as we are right now, uh, we, we might be in, in big trouble. Um, we can say that we can, um, if there's some estimations of what might be the business as usual scenario, if we, if we continue as we are towards uh, 2050, where we will be uh, almost tripling our consumption of um, non-renewable resources associated with artificial fibers, that we said plastic fibers, we also will be uh, more than um, will be um, becoming one of the first sectors in terms of greenhouse gas contributions with around 26% of, of the global carbon budget. And also we will have other added problems like microfibers added to, uh, to the oceans. So, I mean, there has been quite a lot of discussion about plastics ending up on the oceans, people being more 
uh, much more conscious about using reusable water bottles and not using plastic straws. But actually, if we, we look at the evidence, most of the plastics that will end up in our, um, in our water uh, systems, in, in our rivers, in our oceans, is plastic fibers coming from textiles. Every time you wash your t-shirt or you wash your sweater with polyester fibers, those fibers, they are being released into the waters. And, and we current uh, water treatment facilities, they, they don't really uh, collect those fibers, uh, especially those nanofibers, and then we'll end up in the ocean. So we'll have a big problem, added problem of plastics in the ocean associated with textiles and associated to our um, consumption patterns in, in terms of fashion. Um, that also means that we'll have a huge increase of waste, textile waste, uh, with implications for landfill and incineration, with um, carbon emissions associated with um, landfilling and incinerating large amount of textile waste. So can we do anything about it? Can I, please tell me we can do anything about it. And yes, of course we can do something and we can do a lot of things about it. And it's possible to disrupt the system and to make it more sustainable. Um, it's possible to, work, uh, to walk towards a regenerative textile sector. And I do believe it's possible. And there's a, quite a lot of positive signs that we are starting to make a few steps um, towards that direction. But um, yeah, I guess you, <laughs> you will expect that the, the path to that or the pathways to that are not always easy. And yes, it can be done, but it's complex. And it's not only complicated from a technical point of view, which means that we need new technologies, new infrastructures, which we need. But I think that there's something, I mean, there has been quite a lot of advances in terms of recycling of fibers, uh, use of new, um, new technology to separate um, mixed fibers. There's a lot of new technological developments coming, but we also need, as I said, it's not complicated, it's complex because we also need alliances across a large number of different stakeholders. And that's what makes things really complex. So it's not about only changing the way we produce textiles, but it's also changing very much the way we consume and use textiles and fashion. Um, so some of the challenges that may arise in this transition is um, by accumulation of chemicals. We, we were saying that there's a lot of chemicals using in most of the finishing stages and, and refining stages of textiles and those accumulate. So we have um, higher uh, recycle content, some of those chemicals, and there's, unless they have been tackled, uh, they will accumulate in the, in the textiles. Um, so we need to look into what uh, chemicals are being used in, in the production of textiles and how we can eliminate those or substitute by other ones that are less of a concern in terms of bioaccumulation. Bio uh, we also need to develop, the, um, develop infrastructures. At the moment, there's a lack of infrastructure to recover textiles. Even um, places like Europe, they will say, well, Europe is quite advanced in terms of recycling. Yes, but our recycling of textiles is uh, very, very, very small. Um, it's about less than 1% of textiles are being actually recycled. What people call recycling of textiles is mostly um, 
this use of textiles as secondary textiles and, and um, this trade of secondary textiles across the globe. So there's a lack of infrastructure for recovering of textiles. And if this is true for Europe, where we have a good infrastructure for collection and treatment of waste, imagine what does it mean for countries like, or continents like Africa and other countries around the world where they don't have the basic infrastructures for collection and treatment of any kind of waste. Um, we also have the issue of mixed fibers. Mixed fibers makes things a bit more complicated and by mixed fibers is when I say combinations of, for example, cotton and polyesters in, in a t-shirt, for example, and that means that uh, the recycling of that, that t-shirt gets a bit more complicated because you need uh, additional technology to separate uh, two different types of fibers or the otherwise you will have to downgrade the, the fiber for other uses. Um, big issue, and I think Joe is going to talk more about this, is levels of consumption. Even if we have a really sustainable or production of textiles, if our levels of consumption continue in the same pathways that they are now, we are going to have an issue. And there's things that we can do, there's new business models we can introduce to actually change that, to give you the idea that you are still like wearing new things that we all like, but in different ways that don't imply consumption of resources. Um, this lack of traceability, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, this is something that uh, needs to be tackled. If we want to, to have a circular system, we need to know what happens with the 80% of the textiles that we don't really uh, don't have traceability of. We need to understand where are the destinations of our current textiles, what happens when we ship secondary textiles to third world countries and other issues. I'm aware of the time. I think Johara is looking at me with ties that I need to be closing. So very, very quickly, my last slide. Um, we need a new regenerative textile sector, and that means that we need to reduce our reliance on artificial fibers. We need to look for uh, natural fibers, uh, probably other fibers rather than cotton that has uh, lower requirements in terms of water, pesticide, and other uh, raw materials. We need to change the way we produce textiles. We need to eliminate uh, chemicals of concern, production of textiles, but we also have a lot of opportunities to, um, to move towards a regenerative manufacturing sector in terms of textile production. And I don't have time to, to go into that, but there's quite a lot of really cool initiatives to use waste as a raw material um, to reduce reliance on um, um, fossil fuel sources for, for uh, garment production, textile production. Then we also need to, to think about how we use uh, textile. We need to think about shared use of textile, extending the life of the textile. So think more about uh, using things for longer, uh, reuse as a product and reuse, uh, not meaning sending it to the other part of the world, but maybe having reuse networks within um, our own countries. Uh, it also means a reduction of textile waste produced every year, and that means that some uh, waste might be downcycled and might be used as an insulation or other types of applications. Some fibers might be used to, to produce um, uh, uh, other types of like construction uh, products and packaging. 
um, a lot of uh, other products. And then we also should have uh, remanufacturing uh, and Joe will talk about these um, models where we actually remanufacture back uh, our textiles items and they don't they never become waste in and that means also changing the way we design textiles so very quickly <laughs> i think those are the main issues and if you want to uh to hear about cool cases um i mean let me know i can point you to so really cool companies doing things differently and there's a lot of new companies that has appeared in the last five to ten years which are really looking into a regenerative circular uh textile sector fashion tech, uh, sector and making goods that are still look really really good with um almost um half the impact or less so what can you do? You can do a lot of things. Check the labels, go for natural fibers, especially in fibers like jute or hemp, which will rely on less water. Buy secondhand, rent or share your clothes. Um, don't buy as much uh, quality over quantity. This is a last and, and you can use for longer. Um, Choose sustainable brands, but also investigate those sustain sustainability claims. You have to be quite critical about that. Uh, look for things with recycled content and recirculate. Don't accumulate your clothes. And I think that briefly all from me. I'm sorry I went a bit over time, and I'm really happy to take any questions at the end of the of your uh, talk. Thank you. Thank you so much, Teresa. That was actually really interesting. Thinking about um, thinking like rethinking how we think about clothing and not thinking of it as waste or as having a final destination. Um, with that being said, I think um, not everybody has had access to the Slido. Um, so I'm going to quickly um, tell you again how to get there. So it's sli.do to get to the Slido website. And then um, to get to our page, you have to enter the code hashtag UCL climate. And then there you can submit your questions um, that we'll address in the end. Cool. With that being said, um, I'll give the floor to Joe. Um, yeah, thank you. Great. Thanks very much, Johanna. Just a moment while I share my slides. Okay, great. Um, so, during my talk, um, it'd be great if you do have the chance to head over to Slido. Um, there's a couple of questions there for you under the polls. Um, it'd be great if you could answer those questions. One's about how much you've repaired or repurposed your clothes in the past year, and the other is about your reasons for doing or not doing so. Um, and those are some questions that we asked in the research that I'm going to be talking about in my talk. So Teresa has given us a fantastic introduction to uh, circular economy in sustainable fashion. So who plays a role um, who plays a part in circular fashion. Uh, the diagram on my slide depicts uh, a few different key players, um, including retailers, suppliers, uh, public procurers, um, municipalities, but also us as consumers, of course, play a part. Um, I imagine that everyone watching this lecture today is probably wearing clothes, at least I hope you are, um, so we all have a role to play. We know that extending the lifetime of clothes saves carbon, water and waste. And as consumers, repairing and repurposing our clothes is one way that we can help keep them in use for longer. And that forms the central um, uh, feedback loop in that diagram on my slide. 
So this is what I'm going to focus on for my talk today. But what do we mean by repair and repurpose? This can actually be quite a few different things. So it could involve mending clothes when they become damaged, perhaps just sewing a button back on. It can involve altering clothes so that they fit better, uh, upcycling things to improve um, their quality or uh, their appeal, and also repurposing clothes into other kinds of items. So then, Knowing that we need to do more repairing and repurposing, what can we do to change behaviour? And I'm going to use a medical analogy here um, to think about what it is that we need to do to change people's behaviour in general. So firstly, we need to start with the symptoms, understand what's going on with their current behaviour. And then just as a doctor would, we need to perform something like a diagnosis. So to understand what are the underlying influences that are driving those symptoms or current behaviour. By performing that diagnosis, then that means that we can select a targeted treatment or behaviour change intervention, which would change those underlying influences on behaviour. So we're not just going with what seems like a common sense approach, but actually changing uh, the determinants of behaviour um, through a targeted intervention. So this is a general approach uh, to changing behaviour. And to help us with our diagnosis, we can think about, well, what kinds of factors normally influence behavior? And here I'm going to introduce the COMBI model of behavior. And um, so this is a very simple model, uh, which describes three factors that need to be in place for any behavior to occur. And uh, if you have access to Slido, I think under the polls, um, you should also have the question, what does CO and M stand for? So I'd like to invite you to uh, post some answers there, have a bit of a guess. If you don't have access to Slido, don't worry, you can just think about it or perhaps pop it in the chat on YouTube. What do you think that C, O and M might stand for? These are things that determine our behaviour and factors that need to be in place for that to occur. So, uh, I won't give you too long to think about it because we need to move on, um, but have a think, what might C, O and M stand for? And I'm about to give you the answers in just a moment. Okay, so I think um, I'm going to do the big reveal. Uh, so C, O and M stand for capability, opportunity and motivation. So all these three things need to be in place. Capability is our own personal um, skills and abilities and knowledge. Uh, opportunity refers to factors in our physical environment and social environment um, that can give rise to our behaviour. And these things feed into motivation, which can be involved both our more conscious and reflective processes of motivation and also more unconscious or automatic processes as well. Um, so this model of behaviour has informed uh, the research that I'm going to talk about, and we'll be coming back to it a bit um, further on in my talk. So the research that I'd like to present today was about uh, UK repair and repurpose during COVID-19, and we conducted a nationally representative survey of 300 people. Um, I'd like to credit my colleague Lisa Zhang, who actually carried out this research as part of her Masters in Behaviour Change at UCL. And so the questions that we asked were, well, how much do people repair and repurpose and did COVID impact this? So that's understanding the symptoms. What are the main barriers and enablers to this behavior? So understanding the, uh, the drivers, the underlying influences. And what kinds of interventions could increase repair and repurpose? So what kind of uh, targeted um, treatments could we give? 
So I'll start with the first question, how much do people repair and repurpose and did COVID impact this? So one of the questions you might have had an opportunity to answer um, already was to, uh, to vote and give your own um, uh, answer to how often you've repaired or repurposed your clothes in the past year. Uh, Yahara, do we have um, any results on that? Oh, I think you're on mute, Yahara. Yes, okay, I can see them now. Um, so uh, in response to your first question on how often um, do you repair your uh, repair or repurpose your clothes, 40% um, um, of respondents said about once a year and 27% um, said about once a month and 27% also said about once every six months. Um, and the last 10% said never. Well, fantastic. Thanks very much. So I'll share with you then the results that we found from our survey, um, which was conducted in the summer of this year. Um, so here we have the results from before COVID and during COVID um, for uh, our respondents. They were asked the question in a very slightly different way. Um, but it seems like, broadly speaking, uh, we have somewhat similar results, I think, to what um, you listeners have uh, pointed out as well. So actually in our survey, nobody said that they repaired um, once a week. Um, and the most common response was about at once every six months. Um, but on the whole, the majority of people uh, repaired or repurposed their clothes once every six months or, or less often than that. And we had a higher proportion of people who said that they, they never did that. Okay then, so what are some of the main barriers um, to repairing and repurposing clothes? Um, again, I think you might have had the chance to, uh, to give a few reasons for these on Slido if you've had a chance to answer the question, as well as we're going to be looking at enablers as well. Um, so I don't know if I'm able to see uh, the responses to those as well. Or Yahara, I don't know if you want to summarize. Uh, yes, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't think I can see the response to that one right now. Um, I think whoever's guiding the slide. Yeah, here we go. Okay, so. Um, we got three responses for that one. And um, for C, we got communication, culture, and culture. And then for O, we got opinion, options, uh, and options. And then for M, we got means. Cool, fantastic. Yeah, so there's some good guesses there for what the C, O, and M stand for. Um, so I'm going to go through some of the main barriers that we um, found in our survey to why people said they didn't repair or repurpose um, as often as perhaps they would like to. And then next we'll, we'll look at some enablers. So in, in relation to capability, opportunity and motivation, firstly, people talked about um, having a lack of skills and training to repair and repurpose their clothes. And they also mentioned their identity, so perhaps a lack of identity and sense of responsibility um, around uh, repairing and repurposing. That's a motivational factor. Uh, they discussed social influences and point out that it's not really the norm um, to repair and repurpose your clothes often. And also environmental context and resources. This covered quite a few different factors, including people's time constraints, the convenience of alternatives like just buying something new, unaffordability of getting clothes repaired or altered, um, and poor design, meaning that they just didn't lend themselves to being repaired well. So those were some of the um, barriers. Uh, we also looked at some of the enabling factors. Um, so again, I don't know if uh, we've got the answers um, to that question available on Slido. I'm waiting on them now. Okay, um, so that would have been the, the uh, question for what are the reasons why you do or do not um, repair and repurpose your clothes? Oh, I don't think um, we have a response for that one. 
not to worry. <laughs> so it might be something you've been thinking about already, and I'm sure you have lots of reasons in mind anyway. Um, so these were some of the main enablers that came out. And um, one was knowledge. So people mentioned that they are aware of the environmental impacts of clothes to some extent, and particularly when they were, that could be um, a reason for repairing and repurposing their clothes. Um, there were also factors related to their memory, attention and decision processes. That's quite a broad umbrella, but um, it can include, for example, the ability to concentrate, focus on what you're doing. So if you have a good ability to concentrate and focus on mending something, then uh, you might be more likely to sit down and do that or to get involved in a sewing project. Beliefs about the consequences um, are also a motivational factor that came out here. So when people believe in the environmental and economic benefits of repairing and repurposing their clothes, then they're more likely to do that. And emotions came into play as well. So um, often we feel quite attached to our clothes, particularly that one beloved item you just really don't want to let go of. And that could be another reason um, for repairing and repurposing to keep things in use for longer. So those were some of the um, barriers and enablers, the things that are driving behavior. There's one more that I forgot, sorry about that. Um, the last one was reinforcement. So establishing routines and habits um, could be another way to help people um, repair and repurpose a bit more often. Hey, we actually have a couple of responses to that now. So um, they, they're actually quite similar to what you've been saying. So um, they're around um, lacking the skills and the time to repair. Um, lacking the knowledge on how to do it, um, and also being worried about the quality of the clothes that one has not being good enough to repair. Um, and then a motivation for repairing um, that was mentioned was personal, uh, personalizing my clothes and giving them my own touch. Fantastic. Yeah, I think all of those things came up, except for the personalization, which is a really good um, additional reason as well for um, kind of repairing and repurposing, particularly upcycling. Um, that's, that's a really nice aspect of it. So thanks very much again, for sharing those. It's really good to hear those insights. Um, so then finally, what kinds of interventions could increase repair and repurpose based on this, this kind of diagnosis that we were able to carry out? So um, I won't go into lots of detail here because this is a short talk, but I will just briefly introduce um, the tool that we could use, which is called the behavior change wheel. Uh, this is the diagram of the behavior change wheel on my slide. You can find out more about it at behaviorchangewheel.com. Um, and there's lots of information about it online. It's a very widely used framework for um, designing behavior change interventions. And at the heart of this framework is the COMB model, capability, opportunity, and motivation. Um, and around that are arranged um, different intervention types that you could combine in a behavior change intervention um, and different policy options uh, for delivering interventions. I'm gonna focus on a few examples of the intervention types uh, that we identified as part of this research um, that could be, um, that could be uh, options. So these are some selected examples. For example, to um, address the fact that people have time constraints or might find this unaffordable, um, we could use the intervention type of environmental restructuring from the behavior change wheel. Uh, this refers to changing aspects of somebody's environment. Um, so in this case, it could be giving free repair kits at store counters or free community workshops. And um, the first being an example of a change to the physical environment, whereas free workshops would be a change to the social environment. This could help to um, enable more repair and repurpose. 
to address the fact that it's not really the norm, or at least that's how people perceive things, uh, one way to um, intervene could be to present fashion influences who are explaining the benefits um, of repairing and repurposing. This could involve a combination of education, giving people information and persuasion as well, getting them to feel something about it. Another example of a persuasive intervention um, could be to address the beliefs about consequences. Uh, so one way to do this could be through showing images, for example, about textile waste to create negative feelings about disposing of clothes um, or buying new ones. And just a final example to address lack of skills. And then, of course, one way to do that is to provide um, resources such as online guides and to include basic textile skills in the school curricula. Um, and those would be examples of training um, as outlined in the behaviour change wheel. Um, so that was really just a tiny flavour um, of some of the ways that that tool can be used. Um, but I'd just like to leave you then with some take home messages. Uh, so firstly, repairing and repurposing is an important way that we can extend the lifetime of clothes. In the UK, our survey found that 83% of us repair or repurpose one to two times per year or not at all. So there's a lot of room for improvement in this area. And of course, reasons reflect a range of different capability, opportunity and motivational factors. Um, a lot of them you've highlighted and experienced yourselves and those came out in our survey as well. So repair, increase repair and repurpose will therefore need a range of different kinds of interventions. So it's not just one size fits all. Um, as Teresa highlighted in her talk, there are lots of different actions you can take. And in the same way, there are lots of different ways that we can um, go in to try to change people's behaviour based on what's driving that. And the behaviour change wheel is one tool which can be used to identify strategies which address those underlying influences on behaviour. And although I've talked about repair and repurpose in my talk, these are tools um, which can be applied to different kinds of behaviour changes and at different levels of the system as well, and not just consumers. Um, so that's final take home message uh, for you there. So thanks very much. It's been a great pleasure to speak and looking forward to answering, answering any questions. Thanks. Thank you so much, Joe. That was really, really insightful. Um, we now have a Q&A session. So I'm once again going to tell you how to get to Slido um, so you can ask your questions there. So um, to get to Slido, you, you have to go on the website sli.do and then type in the code UCL Climate. And that should take you to our Slido page where you can ask questions. Um, we currently already have six questions. So um, I'm just going to start from the top. And um, I think the first one is um, thinking in terms of carbon footprint places responsibility on the consumer. Does this take corporations off the hook? Um, and I was thinking of asking Teresa that one. That's an interesting question. And I think something that uh, uh, when I was uh, making my presentation, I was uh, uh, referring to that complexity of making the changes. And, and I think uh, you are completely right. It's not about consumers or, or, or brands. It's about both of them and how they, they, they interact and, and how that changes the, the landscape of textile sector. Uh, consumers, obviously, we have a very part of... <laughs> of um, shame or, or we are actually big contributors to, to this, but it's also uh, the way brands work and, and I think the way the system has been designed is to to, to fuel the, the textile system by producing more and more quantity of clothes rather than to look at other ways to create value 
without um, increasing the amount of resources that are used. So it's, it's both is a collective um, fault, is no one's fault. I didn't want to, to put a blame on, on consumers or, or users of textiles. We need to use uh, fashion and we want to use fashion and we want to have a fashion system that creates value is how you create that value, which is disconnected from huge amount of resources going in to, to create new clothes that are used for very little amount of time and then disposed of. So it's about how you change the system. And for that, you have to engage both brands and uh, all the supply side and also the, the use side and the end of life side as well, because um, we are the first or we might be the first user of textiles, but there's secondary users, tertiary users, and then we have all the end of life infrastructure. And we have to be all on board to, to make that system shift towards something that is more sustainable. And only changing consumer behavior is not enough. The same that only changing brand behavior is not enough. Um, and maybe following up on that, um, do you think that there's a risk that um, by, by saying in our current system, growth is possible in line with um, the circular economy that we might also be destroying some sustainable practices, like practices of sharing. If you have a shirt that you know you don't wear anymore, that you'd give it to a friend. Do you think that might be destroyed by saying um, we're now going to have companies, um, you know, have companies, companies have uh, secondhand like secondhand um, websites like um, Depop. Well, they I'm thinking, do. You know, <laughs> do you think, do you think uh, there's, there's a risk that that. Um, that without system change, it, mm -hmm. it, it won't actually be um, as effective and might actually destroy practices of, um, of care that are sustainable. Mm, yeah, I, I, I hear what you say, and I think yeah, I partly understand. I, I didn't talk about growth uh, necessarily. I talk about value creation, and it's about how you create value that is not necessarily associated with growth of stocks or growth of production. So it's how you create value and that could be defined as social value. Um, and, and I think that also detaches us from uh, brands making value and us uh, being like kind of in, in um, blind, uh, I don't know, figurines in the, in, the, in the hands of big brands. And I think that's not a completely true story. I think I'm very much with the um, definition of power by Foucault. Power comes from everywhere, comes from consumer, comes from brands. And it's not about growing the textile sector. We definitely don't want more, more clothes put on or, or clothes made with new resources put on the market. It's about how you create value uh, without increasing the amount of resources that is put on, on or is used by the textile sector. Can you create value by sharing more? Can you, so maybe some of that value will be social value between peer-to-peer -peer sharing, but actually you mentioned brands uh, now owning secondary or second-hand clothes websites. And yes, they're, they're, that's already happening. And there's some brands that are actually trying to, to, to incentivize secondary markets because and, and taking a 
part of the of the values uh, generated in secondary markets. So we have some examples of uh, mostly now at the luxury sector, or right? uh, they are already trying to develop secondary markets because they know their goods are traded in secondary market. I don't see it necessarily as a bad thing. I think it's another way to, to create value. And um, that means also more affordable um, items for consumers. Brands are also making money in a different way. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing as long as there's social value creation, which is what we, we need to, to ensure and there's a just equitable and, and fair transition. Amazing. Um, I was wondering, um, Joe, what are your thoughts on the right to repair? Yeah, great question. Um, so I suppose right to repair is um, wh when a product comes with uh, the condition that it's it must be repairable, right? Um, so this could be potentially one way to change behavior, um, to increase the likelihood that people are going to be able to um, repair and repurpose, reuse clothes for longer. So if something comes with the right to repair, then um, it should at least be repairable. So that might overcome the barrier where people say, well, the quality of this item is just not good enough, or um, I don't have the, the means to repair it because the, the replacement you know, zipper or button or whatever um, might not be available. And um, so that could be removing one barrier. And so that absolutely could be one way of um, addressing behavior change in this area. Um, I suppose then it becomes um, helpful to kind of zoom out a little bit and think beyond the consumer about the other parts of that system. So then that would involve a behavior change um, by other players in the system, so manufacturers, retailers, um, policymakers, and others. And then we can start to think about, well, what is what are the barriers and enablers to their behaviors? You know, how can we use um, Combi, the behavior change wheel, or other behavior change tools um, to think about them as well? So it is a complex system. Um, and one thing that I didn't mention is sort of criteria that we can apply to different types of behavior change interventions. Um, there's a set of criteria that come under the acronym APEAS, A-P-E-A-S-E, -E, um, and those refer to affordability, practicability, um, effectiveness of the intervention, um, acceptability, side effects, and equity. Um, and all of those different things might be considerations to take into account when you're considering what different options there are. So, um, so those, those criteria used to think about um, sort of suitability of right to repair as well um, as an intervention. But yeah, absolutely a good option to be, to be thinking about. And uh, yeah, my view is that this, it wouldn't be a bad thing at all. Hmm. Amazing. Um, then I'm not sure who wants to answer this one, but um, there was a question about COP26 and whether textile waste um, was addressed, addressed effectively, um, or the, the textile industry was addressed at all um, at the event? I'm not sure I have a good insight on that one, Teresa, do you? Yeah, well, no, I don't think it was a focal point of the discussions by, by any means. The same was not things like, for example, plastics that you will say is much more core to, uh, to the discussions of the COP26. I think there was other things on the table that probably um, were priorities for this discussion, but there's a lot of things that need to be done if we really want to be serious about moving to a net zero type of um, transition. And um, there's 
uh, as, as I was saying at the beginning, I think it's in, in a way textiles and other sectors are seen as kind of innocent sectors that don't really contribute to impact. But actually, if we look at the figures, they, they actually do and they make a big contribution to, um, to carbon emissions, but also very other important environmental impacts that have intended to be also a bit forgotten with the um, yeah, definitely. On, on carbon, like water and pollution. So definitely, no, it was not on the agenda. I think it probably was a sensible sort of <laughs> decision not to have it in the agenda because they have too many things in the agenda. It was already quite a difficult discussion, but it doesn't mean that it should not be taken into account. And it should, it's, it's one, one of those uh, bit harder uh, things to address than, for example, shifting the energy sector. You know that you have to shift the energy sector is clear and, and I mean uh, I mean there's quite a lot of policy discussion around that but um, there's clarity about how to do it while changing the the fashion system for example might be a bit more complex from um, from policy uh, point of view because as Joe was also illustrating the type of interventions that you have to do across the whole value chain are quite significant but I think that definitely should be in scope and, and the same that plastics were not there and the petrochemical industry was only indirectly in the discussions. Uh, this is something that needs to be addressed in the next um, in the next uh, conversations. Mm. Um, and then there was also a question about um, what companies you mentioned were sustainable companies, uh, and maybe connected to that, um, a question about like, does it make sense to think of? companies as sustainable? Does it make sense to say this is a sustainable company? Yeah, I think probably not. That's what I put a, <laughs> a question mark and near that. I mean, there's nothing that is fully sustainable. I think it's whether you go for a bit more sustainable or a bit more circular and better or worse. Uh, so I think more than an absolute will, I will go for relatives. And, and sometimes, I mean, there's uh, quite nice niche brands that are are uh, really careful about the way they produce their clothes, uh, the way they are manufactured, the shift to uh, non-fossil fuel energy sources, the, the lack of use of, of chemicals of concern in the production processes, but then you end up with quite high price um, um, pieces that are not affordable by, by all of us. So I think it's, it's making decisions that say it's relatively to what I can afford, what I need and what I can do. What are the things, what are the better options I have? And then you could even go to big brands now, right now that the, some of the uh, guilty players in fast fashion that are also making quite huge steps towards uh, being a bit more sustainable or circular. And you have some, um, you have H&M, which you will be blamed by many for the levels of goods they put on the market, they big drivers for fast fashion. But on the other hand, they are actually making big efforts on substituting quite a lot of the uh, primary fibers to use recycled fibers, both uh, recycled cotton fibers, recycled polyesters. They also introduce uh, new um, natural fibers or recycled fibers like lyocell, which lower environmental impacts compared to, to regular cotton and, and polyester. So I think it's, it's is, um, as I said, it's more looking at whether, um, what can you do within your means 
and looking at the labels, can you go for, I don't know, maybe you cannot afford a Stella McCartney piece or you cannot afford, I don't know, some of the other big sustainability brands, uh, price tags, but maybe you can go for a conscious collection in Sara or, or H&M rather than to buy the, the Yuxual polyester sweater or something like that. So I think it's, it's being mindful of how you, you purchase. Also, the first thing you can also ask is, do you really need it? Do you really need to add? Mm to your wardrobe or can you yeah. or, or maybe upgrade some of your the things that you're, you already have or maybe you can uh, do rental clothing I, I do rental clothing um, yeah. I don't know there's quite a lot of things that you can do uh, which yeah. is still affordable and still within um, the options that you have the, where you go for a bit better uh, and not uh, absolute sustainable which I think is very questionable uh, what about you, Joe? Do you have any uh, advice for for students who wanna um, who wanna do fashion but not but do it in the most sustainable way they can? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think Teresa's outlined a, a really great range of different um, actions that you can take uh, as, as someone engaging in fashion sustainably, and um, it's really all about you know extending how how long we use clothes for, and there's quite a lot of different ways to do that. So. I talked about repair and repurpose, but that's just one. Um, you know, swapping your clothes with other people is another great way to do it. I know in the past um, we had UCL swap shops that were kind of uh, arranged and hosted by sustainable UCL. I didn't have time to present it today, but we actually had um, research done by another one of our master's students in behavior change on those swap shops. Um, and they had a lot of really successful points about them. So I'm sure there are loads of different um, initiatives going on, um, you know, to kind of upcycle clothes, to also to educate yourself about um, what are the carbon um, impacts of your clothes and the other types of impacts on waste and things. There's loads of different um, ways that students and others um, can be getting engaged here. Amazing. Um, I was going to flag something that the Institute of Making did um, a little while ago that kind of responds to what, uh, another question we had, which was about um, how can students access stitching and repair um, workshops and education. Um, so at the beginning of this year, um, the Institute of Making hosted a two week repair workshop and um, they continue to host um, repair and uh, reuse workshops throughout the year. Um, so I highly recommend those. Um, and then actually something that I'm working on as a sustainability officer um, is creating spaces on campus where sustainability can be lived. Um, and that includes spaces where you have some just simple things like needle and thread that might be the difference between buying a new pair of jeans and just stitching it up. Um, so I'll keep you in the loop about um, how, how what we're doing and the progress we've made on that. Um, yeah, um, I don't see any other questions um, in the chat, but maybe to end it off, um, I was wondering how hopeful are the two of you that um, we're gonna see circular economies um, growing within the, the, the communities that we live in, within the countries that we live in. Um, and yeah, how hopeful are you that that is, that is gonna happen and that that's our future? 
I don't know. I, I can go first if you want. You, I'm definitely positive about it. I, I'm seeing changes. I'm seeing changes like from five years ago to now. I'm seeing the big companies making huge investments in new technologies, introducing new business models, introducing new ways to do um, to uh, recycle textile fibers. So I'm, I'm, I mean, they are still quite niche if you look at the system as a whole. But it's, it's already, you, you could see the germ of transformation. I'm definitely very, very positive about the future and definitely see if we can do it if we all have a clear um, vision of what we want to achieve. And, and I'm already seeing good practices. Obviously, as it's, 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 we're saying, it's, it's, not com it's not easy and it's not something that can be done overnight, but I think there's good signs that we are going in the right direction. I think that, um, I mean, then you see other places where it might be um, more Oh, I mean, we are talking here in Europe, but there's quite a lot of transformation. There's other parts of the world that where you don't even have basic infrastructure for treatment of any kind of waste and things like that. So I think, I mean, obviously there's quite a lot of things that need to be addressed globally, but I'm seeing good signs that there's movement and transformation. That's really good. Um, Absolutely, I would agree. Yeah, I would totally agree. And I, mean, I think we are seeing movements in the right direction. Um, I know uh, research coming out from Bayes and the um, Center for Climate and Social Transformation in Cardiff and their partner Climate Outreach is all showing that people's level of concern about climate change is, in, is increasing. Um, and I think that will filter through into all different aspects of people's lives and clothing being one of them. Um, although we talked about how um, the sustainability of the fashion industry wasn't really on the COP agenda. I think it is increasingly um, be becoming um, more prominent on policy agendas. Um, I know that it's been involved in some net zero discussions and things, although it wasn't in the net zero strategy as far as I'm aware. Um, and so I do think we're starting to see more of a platform for that and a really positive direction um, by policymakers and governments is on more and more use of systems thinking and systems based approaches um, to reaching net zero and reducing emissions as well. And I think um, those will be especially valuable um, in kind of achieving a circular fashion economy. So yeah, very much agree with Teresa. I don't think it's necessarily a matter of hope. We have to do it anyway. Um, but I, I do think that we're making um, moves in the right direction and seeing some positive changes. Um, one small tip that just came into my mind um, is a website called followthethings.com um, where you can track, track clothes, but also various other items and kind of see their life cycle and um, how they're produced and how they get to you. Because I do think one of the things that um, is keeping us from building more circular economies is how opaque many of the things that we do have in our lives are. Because um, we don't know where they come from, how they're produced, who produces them. Um, yeah, um, but I really want to thank the two of you for um, this amazing lunchtime lecture and to our audience for um, coming so coming with so many of you coming. Um, yeah, it's been really amazing. And um, I want to flag that um, if you want to come to another lunchtime hour lecture, there's another one on Thursday, December 2nd on um, towards inclusion interventions to address intellectual disability stigma from 1 to 2 p.m. I'm not sure if that's going ahead with the strike, but if it is, go ahead and uh, show up to it. Um, yeah, um, thank you for coming and um, yeah, see you hopefully at another lunchtime lecture.
Bye.